welcome to episode 233 of CXO Talk. I'm Michael Krigsman, and we are streaming live from SAP's big user conference called Sapphire Now. And before we go into this discussion, I just want to say thank you to Livestream, because Livestream is our streaming platform, and man, those guys are really good. And if you ever need like a streaming platform, go to Livestream, because they're, they're really good. So thank you, Livestream. So we're here at Sapphire now, and I have the privilege of speaking with Mike Flanagan, who is deeply involved with analytics and with data and with something new that SAP announced called Leonardo. Mike, how are you? And thanks for, thanks for being here. You're great. Thanks so much for having me. So, Mike, you're, you're deeply involved with, with analytics and with data and with Leonardo. So tell us about your role and what do you do at SAP? So uh, officially, I'm the Senior Vice President of Products for Analytics. And now that we have launched SAP Leonardo, uh, I have also taken on the role of Head of Products for SAP Leonardo. Uh, and yeah, big, big announcement this morning by our CEO, Bill McDermott. So I, I really want to dive into the issues around data and analytics, but very briefly tell us what is SAP Leonardo? So it is officially a digital innovation system. Uh, the idea behind SAP Leonardo is fairly simple. Everybody struggles with business problems, particularly now with the pace of change and the need for transformation to become a digital business. Um, if you're in retail, the problems that you have are not that dissimilar from the problems that your peer companies have. And the solutions to those problems from a methodology standpoint and a technology standpoint also have a lot of commonality. So why does every company have to feel like they're reinventing the wheel? And Leonardo's intended to help accelerate digital transformation for companies by leveraging SAP's experience with other companies to help them solve the same problems using the same methodologies and approaches. Obviously, there's some customization that's involved per company, uh, but you start with a nucleus that is able to accelerate solving the business problem. So there's this combination of technology and business process that kind of move together. Well, obviously, nobody, nobody at the C-suite level stands up in the morning and says, I want to go buy some digital transformation. Exactly. Um, they're thinking about how do I improve revenue growth, how do I improve bottom line profitability, how do I improve customer experience. Um, so when you look at those things, you can break them down into a set of fairly digestible business problems that need to be attacked. And if you can very quickly move from first problem to first solution, and then you attack the second problem with second solution, you can move your company along a maturity curve until you become you know, sort of a fully digital business, you know, post-transformation all the way across, but if you start out saying, I need to go change everything tomorrow, that seems like an almost impossible task in a bottomless pit of money. Yes. Uh, so it's it's important that customers be able to take a little step and see the results and get the return on that investment so that they feel confident taking the next step and continuing on the journey. Mike, I think we should begin with a discussion of data. And we heard in, in one of the keynotes this morning the phrase, data is gold. And, and we hear similar kind of sentiments all around the industry. And so with digital transformation, let's begin with this, this notion of what is, what is the relationship between the, the data and the ultimate transformation, digital transformation that takes place? There are all kinds of great analogies in the market. Uh, data is the new gold, data is the new oil, 
whatever you prefer, the idea is that data is a very valuable asset. And if you think about your data, like you think about your human capital, if you think about the way you think about your real estate investments, uh, you start managing it as an asset that has a lot of business value. Then you start realizing the transformative power of doing things with that data that you couldn't do before. Uh, and then, of course, everybody's talking about IoT or the industrial internet, uh, and that really is about opening up a whole world of data that you didn't have before with sensors and wearables and those sorts of things. Uh, and the transformative power of that data then becomes exponentially greater because there's so much more data from which to draw insight. So we're talking about collecting data from many new sources that even a few years ago were really hard, it was hard to imagine. Can you give us examples of some of the new data sources that are, that are available to us? Sure, absolutely. I, I mean, and of course, I think it's worth noting, it's not just new data sources. Uh, if you've been running your business for 100 years, we have a lot of really valuable enterprise data. Uh, I think the power of things like industrial internet or IoT is adding to that some data from new sources. And so you might think about data from sensors. Uh, we've got you know examples of train companies who outfit the brakes uh, systems on their trains with sensors so that they can measure brake wear. In fact, my car actually has sensors on the brakes. Uh, it doesn't send me an email, but it gives you a little display on your dashboard. Everybody can kind of relate to that sort of example. Uh, now imagine you're managing, like Trenitalia does, 30,000 locomotives, and you're trying to minimize the amount of time that they're out of service for maintenance, both to decrease your downtime costs, but also to improve your customer experience by having the trains running on the tracks. Um, the ability for them to just add some sensors to monitor a little bit of data about maintenance really gave them the ability to transform a business process around um, predictive maintenance. Uh, so, so sensors are certainly one example. Wearables are a new data source. Um, and, you know, and I think uh, if you consider those types of data sources, uh, you can imagine what the future might hold uh, of all kinds of different wearables and embedded sensors. Video is becoming a really powerful new data source as deep learning starts becoming a more mature technology. So it's an incredibly interesting time for, for data people. And these data sources have the power to uh, shape and mold processes. I mean, just for example, last week on, on this show, I spoke with the chief marketing officer, the CMO of Aetna, and a huge insurance company. And he was talking about how they can take wearable data, just as you were describing, and feed that back to patients in order to increase patient wellness. So, so can you elaborate then on the linkage between having these data sources and changing processes and even changing business models? Well, you know, it's interesting. In, in the enterprise world, we talk a lot about business outcomes. Uh, in the Aetna example, what you're talking about is patient outcomes, human outcomes. Exactly. Uh, if I can improve as a doctor, if I can improve the outcome of interacting with a patient um, to extend their life or extend the quality of their life, uh, I mean, that's really exciting. You know, it's interesting to have business outcomes and more profit and more revenue, but, you know, when you start injecting some of the human discussion about the power and the potential of this data, we start realizing we can really change the world. We can change society. We can change the quality of people's lives. Um, and all of that's starting to be made possible by these new sources of data that give you new insight into people. And before we go on to the, to the next phase in, shall we say, the life cycle, so we've collected this data, how do we then start to use it? 
can you give us an example of existing corporate data that we can find new uses for today? Sure. So I think if you look at loyalty card data in retail, there's a lot of information there about purchasing history, purchasing preferences, uh, which stores do you tend to frequent, those sorts of things. There's a lot of rich data there. Historically, it's been used for things like sending you coupons. But there's a lot more that can be done with that, particularly if it's augmented with some new data uh, from new sources. And, and so I think there's, um, there's a lot of value in the data set that already exists there. And as you start thinking about how to augment that with new data, the power of both really becomes much greater than the sum of the parts. Okay, so, so we've now got our existing corporate data that we, we can make use of in new and better ways because we can now aggregate it and, and we, have, uh, we have things we can do with it that we couldn't do before. And so what can we now what can we do now with that data that historically we could not do because it seems like that's the thing that unlocks the power of that existing data. Yeah, I think there are advanced analytical techniques, things like machine learning, you know, lots of industry buzzwords and excitement around machine learning these days. But the power of machine learning is that it really gives you the ability to go back into data that maybe two, three, 10, 20 years old, and take all of that history that you have about customers and store operations and a variety of different things and turn that into training data right, to teach the machine what a customer looks like. What does a good customer look like? What does a bad customer look like? What does fraud look like? Those sorts of things uh, require processing a volume of data from which you learn that a human would be incapable of dealing with, right? So it has to be about using the, using the power machines. Um, and then obviously there are examples in manufacturing where you take that learning and turn it into artificial intelligence, things like robots. Um, but there are also examples in customer service, for example, of uh, chatbots, where now I want to ask a few questions to my bank, and instead of having to have a teller answer the questions, I can just go online and chat and get automated responses that are amazingly accurate for the questions I'm asking. So, okay, so there's all these things that we can do with the data, but how do we how do we uh, prepare that data? How do we prepare? So, so we're collecting that data. We're doing something with it, and then it can be used in the applications you were describing. I think there are a couple of different ways to answer that question, but one that I think is particularly uh, of interest for a lot of our customers is when you talk about leveraging a huge population of data from which to learn, there are concerns about privacy, and there are concerns about data protection. Uh, and so one of the things that is, I, I think, um, important in every conversation about large data sets is how do you anonymize that data? How do you protect the personal information that you contain in that data? How do you make sure that your policies are such that you only use that data for its intended purpose? Uh, that having been said, part of preparing the data is sometimes normalizing the data so that things look common across a large data set, also anonymizing that data. And so when you, when you take an aggregate, you can use that data for, let's say, benchmarking. I want to know the average price that uh, I should expect to pay for a bar of soap. I can collect data from hundreds of different sources. Some of them may express it in dollars, some in euros, some in different currency. Um, I have to normalize that data so it's all in a common currency. And then 
I aggregate that data. Does it really matter whether the data came from retailer A, retailer B, or retailer C, so I can anonymize that part of the data set. And what I'm really looking for is, what is the average price in each city, each country, for a bar of soap? And, and uh, the value of that is then a good benchmark for retailers in that market to use, but you're not using any data that's specific to a retailer in a way that's identifiable for them. And where does that where does that normalizing and anonymizing take place? Does it take place inside the customer walls? Does it take place on the platform side, like on the SAP side? How does that? What's the mechanism for that? And then for the benchmarking as well that you were just describing. It really depends. So one example of where aggregated anonymized data is being used for benchmarking is in SAP Field Glass. Uh, it's an application that uh, we make available to customers. Uh, to deal with the contingent workforce. Uh, and if you look at Field Glass, we see hundreds of thousands of transactions every year for people uh, who are looking for jobs and people who are hiring for temporary workers. Um, inside of that application, we can now aggregate and anonymize the data. So if I say, what should I expect to pay for a salesperson in these three cities? Uh, we have that data, and we can make that available to customers as live insights. So in real time, when they're thinking about what is the right labor rate to offer for this role, they can see what is a common labor rate that will get them a well-qualified, talented individual to fill the role in a reasonable time frame. Um, so that kind of data would be aggregated and anonymized and injected back into the application by SAP at our level. Uh, but we have an example here, uh, actually at the Sapphire Conference, uh, our SAP data network, data network folks are talking about something they're doing with uh, a very large elevator company, um, and that data is that customer's data. So in their case, aggregated, anonymized, and used on their premises in their systems. And I have to assume that this benchmarking capability, either real-time in order to look up, so I want to hire somebody, and what are, what are the labor rates, for example, for this type of position, or historical, I'm thinking of doing something and I want to know how did we compare over the last six months to our competitors. I have to assume this is extremely valuable and uh, this is what customers want. It, it, it seems to be for sure uh, something that uh, we're getting more and more requests to, be, to make available. Uh, what I think is interesting is not so much, I mean certainly interesting, the, the raw benchmarking. But what I think is, um, is more interesting and what we hear more of uh, customers saying, if you could do more like this, it would be great, is um, so I know that I have a certain budget and I know I have a certain set of needs. And that set of needs materializes for me as five skills that I need from an individual. Well, when I go look at the benchmarking data, the five skills that I need in the market that I need them in, twice the budget that I have available. Well, that's not very useful. All, all you've done is told me that I can't hire what I need, and I, so now what? I can't afford the thing that's, I want to buy. That's right, and so the more useful uh, thing in that scenario, I think, is to be able to say, what if I could compromise and only get three of the skills that I really need? Maybe I can teach the, those other two once the person's on board, and if that fits my budget, then that becomes a sort of a win-win, right? I, I get somebody who doesn't quite what I need the day that they join, but I get them for the labor rate that I can afford, and I get the opportunity to teach them the things that they need to come up to it. So that kind of benchmarking uh, also gives you the ability to say, well, what's my next best option? And where is this type of, where would this type of calculator be built? Is this in, it built into 
the HR application? Are they doing this now, dare I say, in a spreadsheet? <laughs> uh, so in a spreadsheet is typically how this kind of stuff is managed. Uh -huh. uh, we go out and we take a big salary survey and uh, we, we pre-populate a central repository, uh, generally a spreadsheet, of benchmark labor rates. Um, that is what we are helping customers move away from. Right. If you want to run a live business, that's not very real time. Uh, and so the field glass application... And prone actually, to errors. I, don't, I didn't mean to interrupt. But there's a lot of problems with spreadsheets. But anyways, I'm, I didn't mean to interrupt. I'm sorry. No, no. Uh, absolutely right. But uh, I, I think the, the, the key here is that we're injecting that information back into the field glass application so that it's right there in the workflow when a customer is uh, trying to, to populate uh, a new template for a new job, for example, a new job posting. Being able to do that means that it's not a sidecar. It doesn't sit off to the side of your core business application. It is part of your core business application. And therefore, it's a core part of your... So this type of analysis then becomes a core part of that process, that business process as well. And that is the key to moving analytics from what it has been up to this point, which is something that is useful for 10 or 15% of your total employee population to something that's used by 100%. I have to put that sort of intelligence into the business process. It can't be a separate thing. Uh, most common example of this in consumer is probably Netflix with their recommendation engine or Amazon, you know, products that go with this product. Uh, those are recommendation engines powered by machine learning. Um, and they're extremely powerful, not because of the intelligence behind them, certainly for that, but because they're in your process. While you're looking for a movie, you're seeing recommendations about movies you might like based on your previous choices. While you're buying toilet paper, you see bar soap that most people you know, might buy at the same time. That's useful because it's in your process. And so it's very easy for you to use it and very easy for you to see the value of it. So the key then is by building these, let's say, features that are backed by this data. From a user interface standpoint, the features would probably look pretty simple on the surface. You know, checkbox, this, this, that, make a few selections. But the key there is by building it into the application, it means it's now central to the activities you're performing, also known as the process. That's exactly right. Nobody wants to have to teach all of their employees how to be data scientists. Uh, you don't want them interacting with complex statistical algorithms. And you know, What you want uh, is you want them to do the work that they're experts at doing. You want your HR people focused on HR. You want your finance people focused on finance. But if you can make all of those applications that they're using in their day-to-day -day lives more intelligent, more capable of helping them run the business correctly, then it's you know it's great and it's embedded into the work that they're already doing. So there's no learning curve for them. Okay, so now we're 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 going through this story, and I want to remind everybody that you're watching episode number 233 of CXO Talk, and we're speaking with Mike Flanagan who is responsible for analytics inside the important Leonardo product at SAP. Did I, did I say that right? All right. <laughs> so, okay, so, so now we've got, the, uh, we've got the data. It's been anonymized, it's been aggregated, so now we can benchmark against it. We've got the 
say, the, the user interface to that data in a nice, friendly way inside the software application, so it's a core part of your process, and that application is being fed from that data store. But you mentioned this, this kind of magic term, machine learning. So how is this, how does machine learning and other, let's say, I hate the term artificial intelligence. It's become like, like digital transformation. It's sort of a catch-all phrase. So how does machine intelligence, machine learning, change the way you now can use that data? How, where's the magic? Machine learning is a buzzword, and everybody's talking about machine learning. Um, machine learning is a fairly, fairly horizontal capability. What makes it interesting is data that will train a model that can then be used to make better decisions. I, just a lab, when you say train a model, for business people out there, what does that mean? So think of it like hiring a new college graduate and needing to teach them how to do a job function in your in your business. Um, the more they do that job function, the more they learn how to do it. The more they do it right and somebody says good job, that positive reinforcement makes them do it that way again. Um, the more they do something wrong and somebody corrects them and shows them the right way, the less likely they are to make that mistake in the future. Fundamentally, the same concepts as machine learning. Um, if I want to take a very large data set of historical data uh, to predict what might happen in the future. What I'm looking for is what are the things that have happened in the past and what are the things that happen in the future and where do I see very high levels of correlation between the past and the future. So, for example, sales pipeline data may be highly correlated to next quarter's revenue. The higher my pipeline is, the higher my close rate is on that pipeline, the more revenue I'll have next quarter. And the machine starts learning exactly how correlated that is, exactly how good of a predictor of next quarter's revenue is this quarter's sales. Um, and the more it learns, the more data you feed it, the smarter it gets, the more accurately it can predict things. Obviously, it's on a crystal ball. There's always an opportunity for unforeseen things to change the future. Um, but machine learning, one of the powerful capabilities is about learning from the past and being able to automatically apply that learning to estimate the most likely thing to happen in the future. So let's come, we'll, we'll definitely dive back into that. But I, I also want to welcome Dion Hinchcliffe. Dion is a, an industry analyst like myself and truly one of the, the most influential analysts within uh, the CI, among CIOs and also hosts his own CIO-focused show on CXO, CXO Talk. CXO Talk, absolutely. Well, thank you. Thanks, Michael. Uh, hi, everyone. Hi, Michael. So, so we've been talking about, uh, you were just describing machine learning, and maybe since, since Diane is here, where does IT and the business, where do IT and the business fit together in this whole well, landscape? Well, I'll add one clarification. So working with CIOs and with the C-suite in general, uh, so there's a lot of excitement around what machine learning and artificial intelligence can do. Uh, the question is, I'm getting more and more though, is now I'm going to hand over my data to these learning algorithms. Uh, what stops you from learning so much about my business and then and then that knowledge uh, gets transferred inevitably through the product to, uh, to my competitors and other businesses? How do I know that all that stuff you learn stays with me, right? So data is the new, new gold, the new oil, as you guys were talking about. 
how do organizations retain control? Well, I think the number one uh, thing in my mind uh, as you started asking that question was it starts with something that we talked about earlier, is recognizing the value of the data that you own, recognizing that your data is an asset to be protected. You don't take the buildings that your company owns and leave all the doors unlocked at night when everybody goes home. Um, same idea with your data. You have to realize what data is valuable, what data is important, what data is proprietary, and take the appropriate steps to protect it. And sometimes that means that you need to think very carefully about the aggregation, anonymization process to make sure that it can't be reverse engineered, to make sure that somebody can't de-anonymize data, for example. And it's surprisingly easy to do since everything gives off data now, right? So there's a lot to correlate with. Uh, but is data unsecure or is it underappreciated in terms of its real value? I think it's underappreciated. Uh, I, I think most of uh, the companies that I talk with recognize that there is value in their data, but if you ask them to put it on a balance sheet to... to put it yeah, on the bottom line, they couldn't long. tell you exactly how to value their data, and that's a problem, because I can tell you exactly how to value my real estate assets, I can tell you exactly the value of every employee in my enterprise, but I can't tell you how much what is being called now one of the most valuable assets of every enterprise is actually worth. So, so Mike, given this, what are some of the, the metrics that an organization that is undertaking a program of digital transformation, when at least when it comes to data, what are some of the metrics or the KPIs that they can use to evaluate their progress? How, do they, how, how are we doing? Uh, this conversation sounds very, you know, right now in the moment uh, and, and new, but a lot of the answer to that question, I think, has been the same answer for 30 or 40 years, which is um, a lot of companies have garbage in, garbage out problems. If your, value, if your data is wrong, it's not valuable at all. And if you use incorrect data as training data for a machine learning algorithm that's meant to predict the future, the predictions are all going to be wrong. Uh, so a big KPI is data quality. How good is your data? Uh, how accurately is it inputted to your systems? How well do you take data that's incorrect out of the system and out of the process? So I think that's a, a key starting point because if your data is not right, all of these advanced technologies, all of these new techniques for learning from data will not benefit you in the way that you're hoping they will. And so this is this is a, shall we say, part of the, is this the correct ter even terminology, part of the software implementation process? or? Well, it's part of a couple of things. I mean, obviously, uh, data quality, there is software that helps with the process of data quality. Uh, but the other thing is business process, making sure that you have a good process for data being entered correctly, validated. On an ongoing basis. On an ongoing basis. You know, uh, the, the challenge, though, is that we heard from here is you know, speed is of, of, of paramount these days. I interviewed uh, or surveyed uh, 54 CIOs, top CIOs around the world, leading companies, about how fast they have to move. And they're all, they all reported they're under very strong pressure to move much more quickly yeah. this year. How can they take these quality measures when everyone's been asked to execute and deliver as fast as possible? Yeah, I mean, this is the this is the problem. Sometimes you have to slow down to go fast. Um, if, if you're if you have a data quality problem and you don't slow down to fix that, all of these technologies that can help you go much faster are not going to help you go faster unless you're going fast in the wrong direction. So it's foundational. It's foundational. So you you really have to consider transforming the way that you think about data from its origination all the way through to its ultimate delivery of value. Um, and if the origination of the data is flawed. And the whole rest of that supply chain, if you will, 
becomes flawed. Learning and artificial intelligence, it all sounds very new, but most of the advice that you and I just talked about goes back uh, for a long, long time. The fundamental processes haven't changed. Uh, what is exciting now is that there are technologies that if you get those fundamental processes right, can help you go at an incredibly accelerated pace. Now we hear about data scientists being so in demand and you need to be prepared to hire data scientists. I think most business people, they hardly know what a data scientist even does. Most data scientists hardly know what a data scientist <laughs> does, but if it's on your resume, your salary goes up, so right. everybody's a data scientist. So, so how should businesses relate to, let's say, let's call it, and to all of my data scientist friends out there, I apologize for this, but how should businesses relate to the data scientist problem? Um, so I think, um, you know, if you, if you think fundamentally about what your core business is, and make some decisions from there about how far away from your core business do you want to own something versus where do you want to procure something. Um, if my core business is data, if I'm Nielsen, having an army of data scientists in-house makes absolute sense. If I'm a retailer, I think there's a reasonable question about how much of that do I want to do in-house? But you need data science, so you're, you know, all of this is about data science. So what should we do if we business people? Well, the question is, do I want to hire them and own it in-house, or do I want to work with a firm who does that as their core competency? Data science is a service, right? Everything's becoming infrastructure. And, and I, think that, I think the question is a core versus context question, just like everything else. Do I want to own in-house janitorial services, or do I want to hire a janitorial services firm to come do that uh, I think you can apply that to lots of different areas of your business about what is the core and what things do you need, but they're not the business that you need to be in directly. Uh, so, you know, we heard some great things about SAP uh, Leonardo today, um, uh, and you guys probably already talked about some of this, but, you know, what it, it seems like the packaging around that is really designed to say, all right, so, so this is part of an end-to-end -end value chain that most organizations have to realize Data is at the center, and the value extraction is going to come from an increasing layer of technology, so blockchain, uh, to machine learning, to uh, data intelligence, and so on. Uh, what, what, if someone's going to understand what SAP Leonardo does, how would, what, how would you describe that in one sentence? I'd say, first of all, there are a whole lot of technologies that are in Leonardo that 100 other companies will sell you as well. Um, so the technology element is interesting and it's differentiated, but this isn't a technology solution. It's a business problem solution. So if you look at Leonardo, the idea is once I solve the business problem, there are common elements of my problem that apply to lots of other companies in lots of other areas. Um, so we talked, I think, in uh, one of the keynotes about uh, an example uh, that I mentioned here, which is trains being outfitted with sensors for the purpose of predictive maintenance. 80% uh, of what was done there would be interesting to a transportation company who owned trucks or a mining company who owned heavy machines to be able to do the same sort of predictive maintenance to minimize downtime and improve their operating costs. And so taking those common elements and packaging them as industry-specific accelerators so that you as a CEO can identify a business problem and figure out very quickly how to get from identifying that problem to implementing a solution to it. It's about accelerating that process in, in between. So it's a, it's a combination of technologies uh, from the SAP portfolio that is aimed at a specific industry or vertical issue. 
and it's combined with a little bit of services because what I've done is taken a 100% solution for this customer and generalized 70 or 80% of it. And they can pour in the rest, right? We then need a little bit of services to tailor it back to the next customer and the one after that. Uh, and so being able to do that lets us move from problem identification to implemented solution about 50% faster. So you, you've, you've kind of systematized or productized some of the, the common uh, technology elements and some of the common uh, process de and deployment aspects. That's exactly right. So there's you know, business problems that are 70 or 80% common. There are, if you look at those problems, technology solutions that are always going to be 70 or 80% common. And it's taking those common elements of technology, putting them together with the common approaches, the methodologies that are used to implement them, and exactly what do I do with that sensor data to get it to reduced operating expense, um, and packaging that as an accelerator. In the old days, we used to call that package solutions. You must have industry... How do you, how do you break it out? I mean, because for industry, for banking, it's going to be... Uh, attributes of this, the underlying technology may be the same, but certainly the process aspects are going to be very different than, say, retail or... That's right. Yeah. And these accelerators are packaged by industry. So the, the recognition is certainly that business problems are fairly specific to industries. There are some that can be generalized horizontally uh, as more technology problems or process problems, but the business problem, if you really want to make it that repeatable, it has to be somewhat specific to an industry. Probably the farther down in the technology stack you go, the more a commonality there is. And as you get closer up to the process and to the activities that people perform and how the data is ultimately used, I would suppose there it becomes much more differentiated business by industry by industry. That's right. And I think as a, as a consumer, you could argue that if you need to go buy a toothbrush, the difference between Walgreens, CVS, Walmart, and Target is not distinguishable for you. But if you get into actually how they run their business every day, obviously each retailer has things that are specific to them that are different from other retailers. And those have to be considered in any implementation. So uh, a lot of talk these days about blockchain. We're seeing more and more types of data. It used to just be records, right? Just the transactions were kept in blockchain. And now we're hearing things like identity and things like uh, SKUs or, or unique customer IDs. Uh, all sorts of things are being thrown in there. What's the blockchain story in terms of data and analytics? You know, now we have to talk about blockchain analytics, I guess, and a whole new generation of, of data. Uh, what's your view on all of that? Uh, Gartner has, I'm a big fan of, of research, uh, and Gartner has something that, uh, that I, I think is appropriate and it's called the hype cycle. Uh, and it's, a, you know, it's this, um, uh, this curve that all technologies, new technologies, start to ride. And at some point, uh, the expectations are this technology can do everything, it can solve every problem, it can slice, it can dice. Uh, and I think that may be a little bit of where we are with blockchain right now. Uh, there's a lot of potential. What I think is really interesting is which ones are going to land on real business value? Which ones are really going to change a business model or a business process? Uh, and I think some of that's still to be worked out. But I love the fact that there's so much potential and there's so much conversation and people are trying things. The key, I think, is fail fast with any technology that works, you're experimenting yeah. with. Mike, we just have a few minutes left. And what advice do you have? You work, you're working with a lot of customers. You see a lot of different businesses. And what advice do you have for 
for a business person who's looking at all of this and hearing about machine learning and all of this stuff, they're trying to figure out what to do. So what should they do? Uh, my, uh, my number one piece of advice, and uh, this is a little bit shamelessly associated to the approach we've taken with SAP Leonardo, uh, is take one small step at a time, get business value from that step, or fail fast, and move on. Don't try to solve every business model, every business process, every business problem all at once with some giant, you know, tens of millions of dollars transformation project. Start small. Start small, find some quick wins, deliver some business value, and then do it again. On the things that don't work, fail fast and fail cheap and move on. Uh, and I think that's probably the most powerful advice that, uh, that I could offer, and that's the design principle behind Leonardo. And I know, Diane, you and I speak, we speak with lots of CIOs. It's certainly great advice for any CIO. Yeah, totally agree. The, uh, the getting the lessons quickly enough and building the skills while you're doing that then allows you to tackle and do it right you know, the second All right. Well, this has been a, a fascinating conversation. We have been speaking with Mike Flanagan, Senior Vice President at SAP, and I'm so thrilled that Dion Hinchcliffe, uh, industry you, analyst focused on CIOs, has come join us. And of course, Dion has his own show on CXO Talk focused on CIOs. Thank you, everybody, for participating today. Mike Flanagan, thanks so much. It's thanks been so much great. for having me. And Dion. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Have a great day.